Hey, Facebook family, Garden Church. I just want to say welcome. Welcome to the garden. The garden takes on the internet. Um, I just wanted to take a second and just remind you guys that while the building is closed, the church definitely is not. And while you may be separated from other believers, you are not separated from God. God is here, God is active, and God is present. And just as He is here, active and present, wherever you're at, I know for a fact that He is active and present and real. And if you press in, you can encounter God alone where you're at. Amen? Amen. Alright, so I just want to remind you guys of a few things that, like I said, the church is not closed. The building's closed, but the church is not closed. So with that being said, those of you that worship God through song, we have been taking elaborate measures to try to get some form of worship up. Faith did that last night. I think she did a great job. There's a little bit of technical difficulty, but we created a YouTube video and then posted the link on the site so you're able to access it that way. Um, for those of you that worship God through your giving, we created the Tithely app, and you can also give through the website if that's a form of worship that you like to do and you feel compelled to do, then those avenues are available also. And if you just want the fellowship, Pick up the phone and call me. My number is available if you don't already have it. You can drive by the church and get it off the sign. You can get it off the website. You can get it off the Facebook. If you just want somebody to talk to, we're here for you, and I know that the other members of the Garden family are here for you as well. If you're new and you've never experienced the Garden Church or never been a part or fellowship with us, I just would like to say thank you for tuning in. Thank you for participating. It means a lot, and I pray that God blesses you through this. So if you would, let's just go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump right in. Amen? Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this opportunity. Lord, I know that it's an interesting time, and we keep saying that. It's something that we keep repeating, that it's unprecedented, that it's unparalleled this has never happened before it may never happen again and the list goes on and on and on to show how unusual this situation is but God even before the foundations of the earth were laid you knew that this day would come you knew that this hour would occur and you knew how the church would try and respond to that so Lord while we're not together physically and while we feel like the church is limited and our functions are limited by what we can and cannot do the one thing that is unlimited is our ability and our capacity to love and to serve you and to love and to serve one another. So God, I pray that through this message we might be encouraged, that we might learn and grow and be edified, but that also we might be challenged to go forth and to show the love of God to one another in the best avenues possible while still being intelligent and obeying the law of the land. And also that we might be challenged to worship you on a greater and a deeper level than we ever have before. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so as many of you guys know, we are in a series called Encountering Christ or Encounters with Christ, however you want to say it. Um, this is the fourth installment of that series and I had originally planned, at least in the dark recesses of my mind, I had planned that I was going to let this series carry on through Easter and then let Easter be the exclamation point and the culmination of the series. But as I was in prayer and I began to study for this message, I began to feel that that really wasn't what I was supposed to do. So today, the fourth message of this series is actually going to be the conclusion of the series also. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, and we're going to be starting verse 1. I actually remember this time, and I put the chapter and verse on the uh, comments on the live stream. So if you didn't hear me, you can look right there and see those uh, locations. Anyway... One thing that I always do is I always in a series go back and repeat and kind of do a quick review of everything that we've covered up to this point. And when we started this series, we started in John chapter 4. 
And it was an interesting encounter because Jesus went through Samaria when he didn't really have to, geographically speaking. But he made an intentional effort to go into Samaria. And we know that the Jews and the Samaritans kind of were at odds and at enmity. They didn't really like each other. The Jews thought that the Samaritans were half-breeds. The Samaritans thought the Jews were arrogant and religious. And there just was a lot of tension there. So Jesus went into Samaria and sat down at the well. The disciples went into the village to buy food. And this woman comes out. So not only is she Samaritan, but now she's a woman. And we find out later that she has an unfavorable past, a sinful background. And she doesn't have the right religion. She doesn't have the money or the means or all of these other things that might consider her to be someone that Jesus would use or that Jesus would seek to encounter. But yet Jesus chooses her to have this conversation, begins to reveal scriptural deep truths about himself and about the spirit, about the well inside, and all these wonderful things that cause her to then go into the village and evangelize. And a lot of people end up coming to faith in Christ by her testimony, even though she was completely unqualified. So the question is, is there anything that can prevent Christ from getting to us? And so in that first message we looked, Jesus went through every background, every barrier, every wall, every partition, and he broke it down to get to this woman. She didn't have the right background. She didn't come from the right family. She didn't have the right ethnicity. She wasn't the right gender. She wasn't intelligent enough. She didn't have the right husband, etc., etc., etc. The list goes on and on. But Jesus broke through all of those barriers and chose her and used her. And then we, the second week we went to Mark chapter 10, and we encounter a man that had all of the right things going for him. He was rich. He was a ruler. He was a Jew. He kept the law. He had the right family. He was popular, etc., etc., etc. But he goes away discouraged. So I love the contrast there, and I've repeated this several times, about the woman who had nothing but found Jesus and ended up with everything, and the man who had everything and rejected Jesus and ended up with nothing. I love that contrast because it shows this, can Jesus reach you wherever you're at? The answer is yes. And then it shows, is Jesus precious in your sight? And the question really is, what do you think? It's up to you. Is Jesus precious in your sight? You have to answer that. I can't answer it for you. I can tell you that he should be, but I can't tell you that you think that Christ is precious and that you think he is worth leaving everything to follow. And then last week we went to John chapter 18 and we talked about Jesus' encounter with Pilate. And we know that this is at the point where Christ has already been arrested. He's already had his religious trial. He's already went through the garden and all of the persecution and he comes. And this is his civil trial and the people are trying to get Christ crucified. They want Christ put to death. And Pilate in this conversation, one of the things that he asked in the statement that we honed in on is he says, Am I a Jew? And that statement, you know, we ended up using that and following through and seeing Pilate's in reaction saying that Jesus was king of the Jews. So he acknowledged that he was a king and he was good for somebody else, but am I a Jew as in does this even pertain to me because I'm a Roman? I don't I have my own deal, I don't need this, this doesn't involve me, this doesn't concern me, and the list goes on. So you see this progression that we've been going through in this series. It starts with the woman at the well. Can Christ reach you? Can Christ choose you? Can he call you? Are you qualified? Well, the answer is no, you're not qualified. But he can reach you. He can call you. And he does choose you. And then the second question is, is Christ precious to you? Because the young ruler said, good master, what should I do to be saved? What must I do? And the answer was, you can't do anything. You have to 
let Jesus be the fulfillment of the law for you? Is Christ precious to you? Is he worth leaving everything behind? And then Pilate, what is truth? Am I a Jew? Does this pertain to me? And the answer is whether you like it or not, of course it pertains to you. So that kind of sets the stage for where we're at right now in Acts. And in Acts chapter 22 and verse 1, I'll give you a little bit of background. This is the encounter with Paul and Christ. Now this isn't the original encounter. The original encounter is in Acts chapter 9. This is Paul's recounting how he encountered Jesus. And I wanted to go from here because it's Paul's first perspective of his testimony, how he encountered Christ, how Christ came to him. And there's a couple things in the wording in here that we're going to use for our purposes. So if you want to read the original encounter, that's in Acts chapter 9. But in Acts chapter 22, Paul's been arrested. This is him getting ready to be taken to Rome and going through several trials and several different acts of persecution. But before all of that happens, Paul has an opportunity to tell his testimony. And that's where we're going to pick up at. Brothers and fathers, this is Paul speaking, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, notice he's speaking in Hebrew, but the New Testament's written in Greek. So Luke is writing this in Greek, even though Paul originally spoke in Hebrew. That's going to be important in a moment. Am I, I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus and Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, meaning Christianity, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait, rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name? All right. So this situation, this is Paul defending himself by giving his testimony, showing that just as the Pharisees that were persecuting were religious and zealous of the law, so he was too. And he even started out his career by persecuting Christians. He started out his career by being taught by Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, who was one of the most respected teachers in Israel at the time. And so what he says is he starts by saying that he's a Jew, where he was raised, where he was educated, how he persecuted people, that he was in favor of the high priest and the whole council of elders. 
and all of those things. And then he begins to describe this journey to Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, a bright light shone. He got thrown from his horse. The whole situation blinded him. And he heard someone speaking, and it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Just for a little bit of record, Saul and Paul are the same person. Saul is his Hebrew's name. Paul is his Roman's name. His Roman name. And I love this, and this is kind of where I want to start our focus. And Paul answers, Who are you, Lord? I love this question because, as it says at the beginning, Paul was speaking in the Hebrew language. And you may be thinking, well, why is that important? Why is it important that he was speaking in the Hebrew language? The reason that it's important is because in our culture, we don't really understand the prevalence and the power of the name of God. We don't really get it because every single one of us, our entire lives, we've been able to say Jesus. We've been able to say God or Lord or Yahweh or Yehovah or Yeshua or Mashiach. We've been able to say all of these different names, El Elyon, El Shaddai, Elohim, and it's never been an issue for us. But in the Jewish culture, and I've mentioned this before, but in the Jewish culture, they couldn't do that. They had so much reverence and so much respect for the name of God that they couldn't just say, Yahweh told me in conversation, or they would be stoned for blasphemy or for irreverence. They couldn't do that. The only time that someone could use the name of God was the high priest once a year when he went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to put blood on the mercy seat. Everyone else in conversation could only refer to God as the name. They would call him in the Hebrew, Hashem, the name. That's how if I was going to talk to you and say, I was praying to God, I would tell you I was praying to Hashem. I wouldn't say I was praying to Yahweh. I wouldn't say I was praying to Jesus. I would say I'm praying to Hashem. Because that was the respect that they had for the name of God. And if they were alone and they were in prayer, they were allowed to call God a different name. And in Hebrew, that name is Adonai, meaning Master or Lord. So when Paul is saying this, when he cries out to the voice that's speaking to him, when he says, Who are you, Lord? He's speaking in the Hebrew language. And he's not saying, who are you, kurios, which is the Greek word here for Lord, meaning supreme or utmost authority. What he's saying is, who are you, Adonai, meaning, who are you, Lord? Let me explain this a little bit further, because I don't feel like I'm doing the best job. Paul, in his prayer, when he says, who are you, Lord, he's asking, are you God? Are you the Lord? Because it would be irreverent of him to say, Who are you? Yahweh? Who are you? Jesus? Who are you? He, he couldn't do that. But he could say, Who are you? Adonai. Are you the Lord? Are you the God? Are you the Master? There's another way that people like to define this, depending on how they translate the Greek and how they do their comma placement, where it's, Who are you, Lord? And in that respect, it would be, okay, I acknowledge that you're God, but who are you? So you've got the one hand where it's, who are you, Lord, as in who are you, are you God? And on the other hand, it's, who are you, Lord? Are, I know that you're God, but who are you? As in, who is God? 
Either way, the answer is priceless because Jesus says, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you persecuted. So whether you're saying, okay, I acknowledge that you're God, but who are you? I'm Jesus. Or who are you? Are you the Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, I am the Lord. Yes, I am God. So whichever direction you take with that interpretation, the end is the same, is that you come to the fact that Jesus is the Lord. And in comparison or contrast to Pilate when he says, Jesus, the King of the Jews, am I a Jew? Does this even pertain to me? Paul starts off by saying, who are you, Lord? Are you Lord? Because it definitely pertains to me. And see, sometimes in our culture and in our upbringing and our traditions and our baggage and our thoughts, we like to bring our preconceived and presupposed ideas to the Bible. We like to bring our emotions and our feelings and our judgments to the Bible and then we like to tell God who He must be or who He should be. Like we see the judgment of God upon a nation and we're like, wow, that was a little bit much. I don't think God was really acting in love there. The problem is is that we're fallen and so we really and truthfully have no idea what love actually is except for what the Bible describes and explains to us. So we bring these ideas and we like to create our own God. Or we like to pick and choose through the Word what God is and what is not of God. And so we'll kind of reject portions of Scripture. And we may not go so far as to say it out loud, but we just kind of avoid them. We like almost divorce ourselves from the Old Testament, almost kind of unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament so that we can focus entirely on the New. And we like to try to think that, okay, the God of the Old Testament doesn't really sound like the God of the New Testament. So I don't really want to focus on that. I don't want to really acknowledge the holiness and the severity and the otherness of the God of the Old Testament. I like to focus on the good and the happy and the you know, lovey-dovey portion that's revealed in certain passages of the New Testament. And so we kind of go through the Bible and we say, okay, I like this part, so I'm going to hold on to that. That's going to be the verse that I quote, that I memorize. But I'm going to kind of just get rid of some of this other stuff. I'm going to kind of slide this other stuff out of the way because it doesn't really fit in my ideology of who God is. And in truth, we say that we love God, but really and truthfully, we love what we've created. We've taken our thoughts and our emotions and our ideas and we've built ourselves a God and then we've loved the work of our hands. Now in the Old Testament they would take wood and they would take stone and gold and silver and all these different things and they would form and fashion an idol and they'd pray to it. Well we don't do that in our day. We don't make idols out of our hands but we make them in our minds. We take, okay this is how I think love actually is and so I'm going to impose that upon God and so now God my God has to operate according to my ideal of love. Or this is my idea of judgment and this is my idea of grace. And so now I'm going to impose that on God and say that God now has to operate to, according to my idea of what grace is and my idea of what truth is. And so we take God and we form Him and we fashion Him and we say, okay, this is God, now I'm going to pray to Him. When really and truthfully it's just a creation in our mind. See, God cannot be described in that He has described Himself. We cannot form or describe or paint a picture of God other than what He's already painted for us in the words of the Scripture. We cannot define God other than what He's defined for us in Scripture. We must let God reveal Himself. And then when we come to God in prayer, we must say, Okay, God, You are God. You are holy. You are Alpha and Omega. You are the beginning and the end. Now you tell me who You are. Because I don't know. 
I'm not capable of saying, okay, God, this is who you should be because I'm sinful and I'm fallen and I'm frail and I slip up every single day and I'm not the most intelligent and I'm not the most cunning and I'm not the most creative or imaginative. So I don't have the ability to tell you who you are. So you, why don't you tell me who you are, God? Why don't you explain to me who you are? Why don't you reveal yourself to me? And see, we don't do that in our day anymore. At least not in large part. In large part, we let our culture and our society dictate who we are as the church and dictate who our God has to be. It's almost like we're ashamed of certain parts of God. When someone comes to you and they ask you about a specific sin, or they ask you a conversation I had a while back. I, was, uh, I had a really bad day, and uh, I went into Subway, and... I was uh, running off the mouth a little bit. We've all done that. We've all had our moments where we just kind of run our mouth and say a whole bunch of things that we're not supposed to and then we have to repent of it afterwards. We've all done that. But I had mine. Um, it was a while back, but I was running off the mouth in Subway and I was just saying things, not cussing or not just tearing people down or anything like that. I was just saying things that I really didn't need to be saying. Um, and this girl looks at me and... I could tell that what I was saying was making an impact on her. And so I just I just looked at her and I said, it's okay to vent every once in a while, isn't it? And, uh, you know, she looks at me and she said, yeah. She said, uh, I went through a lot of things. And so I used it as an opportunity, and I'll spare you all the details of the story, but I used it as an opportunity, and I began to tell her about the love of Jesus. And she told me some of the situations about people that had hurt her. And uh, I began to tell her and said, you know, people will always hurt you. Even the people that you love the most, whether it be your spouse or your children or your parents or your siblings or your cousins, people are always going to hurt you. But you can't shut yourself down to love. So because we don't love because the people are deserving to be loved. We love because we are loved. God loves us and therefore we love because we are loved. And I used this as an opportunity and I began sharing the gospel with this girl. And I began to say, while those people walked out on you, and left you hanging, jobless, homeless, and pregnant, God will never do that. Jesus will not leave you hanging. He will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. And I began to preach the gospel to this girl. And she looked at me and she said, okay, okay. She said, you're talking about Jesus and you're talking about God, but I have a question for you. She said, I'm a lesbian. And I've heard people preach hate against me because I'm a lesbian. <laughs> what do you think, preacher? Is it sinful? And I just looked at her and I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I'll answer your question. But before I do, I want to tell you something. I said, why don't you seek God, get a Bible, Seek the face of Christ and seek the Holy Spirit and not listen to what I have to say and not listen to what anyone else has to say, but you just keep seeking God in honesty and let the Holy Spirit convict you of that sin. And when you're convicted, stop doing it. And she looked at me with tears in her eyes and this is what she said. She said, I already know that it's wrong. 
But she, in our conversation, went on to express, but I love her and all these different false ideas of what love is. Because in a fallen state, we contrive these ideas of what love is and then we impose that on God and say, okay, well, I know what love is because I've lived so long and I've become the expert on love. So this is what love is and now my God has to love in the way that I tell him that he has to love or otherwise he's unloving. And that's not true. The only one that gets to define what love is is God because he's the only one that's sinless and perfect and omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. So he's the only one that's been there from the beginning. So if anyone gets to say what love is, it's God, not us who've lived such a short amount of time. But she was imposing that idea on God, even though she knew that it was wrong. And when pressed, she was willing to admit that she had been posing a false idea of what love is upon God. And so I challenge you that when you go into prayer, that you don't bring this baggage of telling God who He is and who He should be, but rather when you go into prayer, let your prayer begin, God, show me yourself. Define yourself. Describe yourself. Reveal yourself. Show me who you are, God, so that I can worship who you truly are, not the idol that I've created in my mind. Because as Paul Washer says, we've created an idol and then we've loved the work of our hands. And I just say that we've created a mental picture of who God is and then we love the mental picture that we've created. And really and truthfully, all we're worshiping in that sense is ourselves. Because we're saying the God that we worship must have our ideals. He must have our opinions. He must have our judgments. He must agree with us on everything. He can't possibly disagree with us. He can't possibly bring correction because if everything that we do is right and the picture that we've painted of God is the same picture that we would do in His situation, then He's never going to bring correction or discipline. He's never going to bring edification because He can't go beyond who we are because we're the ones that created Him. And the created thing can never be greater than the Creator. So don't tell God who He is. Ask Him who He is. Who are you, Lord? So Paul says, Who are you, Lord? And Christ answers. And the call, as the conversation proceeds, Paul's next question is this. What shall I do, Lord? See, last week when we were talking about Pilate, we were talking about a problem in Christianity is that people want Christ without surrender. They want the fire insurance as so many people have called it they want the protection from hell they want the grace they want the love they want the mercy they want the blessings they want the prosperity they want all of the good things that come about in christianity but they don't want the surrender they want christ as savior but they don't want him as sovereign paul's immediate response is what shall i do lord who are you are you the lord okay now you're the lord what shall I do? I see what you've done. I see who you are. I see all of the grace and the goodness and the amazing works and merits of Christ and how that's imputed and attributed to me. I see all of that. What should my response be? And you guys, many of you know me and I've had this phrase attributed to me before that I can be kind of intense sometimes. And I preach Christ matters more than anything else. Everything else pales in comparison to the glory that's in Christ Jesus. Everything else is worthless in comparison. And if you esteem something above Christ, it's just because you don't know Christ. If you value something more than you value Christ, it's because you don't have a proper revelation of the majesty that is in Christ. So you don't know Christ. 
Because if you know Him, then He is everything. And so a lot of people get this impression that what I'm actually saying is that you have to quit your job, sell your home, leave your family, and go and preach the gospel. And that's not what I'm saying at all. See, we talk about callings. And we talk about anointings. And everybody automatically wants to think of this. They want to think of this pulpit. Like if you're called, it has to be to a pulpit, or it has to be to a keyboard, it has to be to music, or it has to be to preaching. And that's not true at all. I know some of you in the jobs that you do. Some of you are in technology. Some of you are in mechanics. Some of you work in the health and the fitness industry. Some of you are in security. Some of you work in retail. Some of you work in real estate. There's just all of these different jobs. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are electricians. Some of you do all of these different things. And no one's ever said that you're called to your vocation. I feel like maybe, I said no one's ever said, I should have said, maybe no one's ever told you that your vocation can be a calling. In the Old Testament, when they said about building the temple, God says that He put His Spirit in specific people to create specific works of art. The man that cut the beams out of cedar, the man that put the stones in the breastplate, the man that sewed the ephod, all of those different things were an anointing from God to accomplish. But they weren't standing behind a pulpit and preaching the gospel. They weren't doing it in front of a big audience of people. They weren't standing and leading in song. They were just doing their vocation in the power of the Lord and for the glory of the Lord. And sometimes we think that when you're called that you have to be talking about the fivefold ministry. You have to be talking about the church. I am. But I'm talking about the extended church, the invisible church. I'm not talking about the church building. And this is the perfect time because the church building is closed. So when we're talking about calling, I'm talking about what you do every single day. You're called to be a husband. You're called to be a wife. You're called to be a daughter or a son or a brother or a sister or a father or a mother. You're called to be a family member. You're called to be a friend. You're called to be an employee. You're called to be an employer. You're called to be an entrepreneur. You're called to be a Christian, a man or a woman of God, a child of God. Those are all callings on your life. Just because you may never stand behind a pulpit, just because you ne may never play the keyboard, just because you may never sing or participate in the worship team, doesn't mean you're not called. Whatever your vocation is, whatever, wherever you're at right now, you don't have to wait for some far off day in the distant future to begin to walk in the calling of God. You just have to find where you're at right now. When God spoke to Moses and He called him at the burning bush, He didn't say, Moses, this, I, need you, I got this shopping list, I need you to go out and get this, this, and this, and then I need you to fix your speech, and then I need you to do this, and then I need you to do this. No, that's not what He said at all. He said, Moses, what do you have in your hand? And I face Dad preaches a message, what do you have in your hand? And it's really good. But what I'm going for is God called Moses where he was at and said, what do you have? And God used that. God called him 
He didn't, God didn't just miraculously jump on him and fix Moses' supposed speech impediment. He said, Moses, you go, and I'm going to use you exactly the way that you are. Now, granted, we're going to have some sanctification, and we're going to have some growth, and I'm going to do work in you, but I'm not going to change you. It's still going to be you. It's just going to be a perfected you, a mature you, a holier you. God doesn't want to come and just wipe away our personality and wipe away our, everything that we are. He wants to come and He wants to indwell us and take our personality and our per, uh, likes and dislikes and desires and He wants to redeem those. Some of them will leave because they're sinful, but He wants to redeem who we are and use us where we're at. See, some of you are called to be great businessmen and women. Some of you are called to be great mechanics and great different things in construction so that you can build the churches, so that you can fix the pastor's car, so that you can make a whole bunch of money and you can support missionaries and etc., etc. The list goes on. But the calling isn't just standing behind a pulpit. The calling is to be who God's made you to be right where you're at. And Paul's third question, I love this. This actually isn't a question from Paul, but it's a question to Paul. When Ananias comes and Paul's cured, healed of his blindness and Paul gives his life to the Lord and right before he's baptized, this is what Ananias says. He says, and now, why do you wait? Why do you wait? Now the why do you wait was on rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. That was on Paul getting baptized and giving his life to the Lord. That was what he, the why do you wait was pertaining to with Paul. But the why do you wait, knowing that that's the will of God, is also saying why do you wait to accomplish the will of God? Why put off tomorrow what can be done today? Why do we think that way off in the future you're going to be a minister? Way off in the future you're going to be a preacher? Way off in the future you may have a house church? Way off in the future you may do this or you may do that? Or your goal is to have this business or that business? Or do why do you wait to do the will of God? Why not be the best father that you can be today? Why not worship God through your parenting? Why not be the best spouse that you can be today? Why not worship God through your relationship with your spouse? See, Christ even, or Paul even puts it in Ephesians 5 uh, concerning marriage that the husband should be to the wife as Christ is to the church and the wife should be to the husband as the church is to Christ. And so why wait? We don't have to be sitting here and me staring at all your beautiful faces in these seats for us to be the church. We can worship God exactly where we're at right now. And we can serve Him and build the church and grow the kingdom by just being the people that He's called us to be. I hate when somebody comes out and they're musically talented and everybody says, okay, you're going to be a musician, but you got to be a Christian musician and only sing this type of song. And I hate that. Why do I hate that? Because why can't a musician be a Christian and sing wholesome songs, why do they have to sing the type of music that we say that they do? Or when somebody has a gifting of, say, construction, why would we say, you only can build churches? That would be absurd. Because they'd, they'd run out of clients pretty soon, or they'd have to keep moving around, or go to a foreign country and build churches. No, they do the work in a natural sense for the glory of God. They do 
And I hate this, this categorization that we have where we say there's secular and there's sacred. So we say there's sacred jobs such as being a pastor or being a worship leader or being a youth minister or being an evangelist or a missionary. Those are sacred jobs. But this over here, being in construction or being a doctor or being an accountant or a lawyer, those are secular jobs. I hate that categorization because to the Christian, nothing should be sacred or secular. It should all be sacred. Because everything that you do, you should do to the glory of God. So you do what you do, and you just do it to God's glory. If you're a security guard, you don't fall asleep on the job. You're diligent and adamant about the work that you're doing. Just as if you were guarding a vault full of Bibles, you do the work as if you were doing it directly for God, because in truth, you are doing it directly for God. If you're a construction worker or an engineer or a mechanic, you don't take the shortcuts. You do it just like you were working on God's house or God's car. If you're a doctor or a physician or a masseuse, you do everything like you were doing it for God. If you're a teacher, you do it directly like you were teaching a young Christ. If Jesus Christ was in school, how would you teach them? It's all about just doing things as if they were a calling because they are a calling. Jobs just aren't, I'm just going to pick this up because it's the first thing with the paycheck. No, you're appointed to your job. Every job I've ever had, and Faith has the same testimony, every job that I've ever had and every job she's ever had, we found that they, we were there for a purpose and we were able to speak into someone's life and bless someone through conversation. Even if it wasn't someone that we worked with, even if it was just a customer or someone that we came into contact by chance because of the job, every job we've ever had, we were specifically called to that job for a reason. Just because you pick up a job because you don't have one and you need a quick paycheck coming in does not mean that that job is just a a byword or an in-between or an interim period. No, it is a calling and an appointment and as long as you have that job, you should treat it as such. Every child that comes across your path, every person that you meet, every friend that you have, everyone in your family, they're a calling. And you've been anointed and appointed for that position. Walk in that. Don't wait. Start today. Even today, start being the husband, the father, the brother, the son that you never were, or in a woman's perspective, the wife, the daughter, the sister, the mother, the grandmother that you never were. And start being those things to the glory of God. And I want to wrap this series up because I feel like it's kind of come to, to a head here. And let me explain. In the first message... We see this woman who's completely unqualified and she has nothing going for her, but Jesus breaks through all of those barriers. He breaks through all those barriers, almost ignoring them, and just continues to speak to her and encourage her about the filling of the Spirit, about His being the Messiah, about the truth of how to worship and where to worship. And we see a completely unqualified woman be used of God to reach a village. And then we see a man that was qualified, but he didn't want to surrender to Christ and sacrifice himself 
or the, his sacrifice, his possessions rather, to follow Jesus. So his possessions took hold of him, and he esteemed Jesus as not worth his possessions, so he surrendered to his idols. And then we see Pilate, and he says, What is truth? Am I a Jew? Does this even pertain to me? Jesus, you can be someone else's king, but you're not going to be my king. And then you see Paul, and he says, Who are you, Lord? What should I do? Why would I wait? So let's put this in perspective. The woman, can God reach you? Can God use you? It says that Jesus Christ is able to save those even to the othermost, seeing that He now sits beside God, continually making intercession. We see the young man, and he doesn't esteem Christ as precious as he esteems his possessions. And so I have to ask you, do you see God as precious? Do you see Christ as being precious? Precious above all measure? Is there anything in your life that you esteem above the precious worth of Jesus Christ? Because if you do, then that thing has become an idol in your life. Can God reach you? Yes, He can. Is God precious? You have to decide, although I would encourage you to acknowledge that He is. The, last, the next question, does this pertain to me? Whether you like it or not, it does. Philippians says that the day shall come where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether you do it today willingly or you do it later forcefully, you will confess that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You will confess that He is above all, that He has the name above every name, and it will be for God's glory. So yes, it pertains to you whether you like it or not. And the last question is, and this is one that you have to answer, where do we go from here? What I mean is, if you've come to the place and you say, okay, God can reach me and God can use me, and yes, I've esteemed Him as precious above everything else, and yes, this pertains to me, I admit that it does, and yes, I want to surrender to the Lordship of Christ, where do I go from here? Where do I go now? What do I do now? Because everybody has this picture and they see the testimony of the apostles where they just sell everything, throw all their money in, and they travel the world preaching the gospel. And that's beautiful. And some are called to do that. But the testimonies that we don't see in Scripture laid out specifically are the testimonies of the people who own their houses that the apostles later gather at, who stay in their cities, who set up churches in their house, who continue doing the vocations that they've always done, but now they do them to the glory of God. So the question is, where do we go from here? What do you do now? That's between you and God, but I'm excited for you to find out. Amen? Amen.